Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts, what will happen if we don't change? And what can we do to create a better future? I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Keep listening to find out what happens next. What should your size matter if you're healthy and you're enjoying your life? I think we need to not strive for perfection here. We have to accept ourselves as we are. That's where we're using treatments like surgery or like medication, which helps suppress the appetite, helps control or modulate that that drive, that hunger that tends to cause the weight regain. In our first episode on weight loss, we looked at the obesity crisis, the stigma attached to being overweight and how losing weight and keeping it off is much harder than we think. In this episode, our experts dig deeper into the way we talk about weight and ask if we're putting reasonable expectations on our own bodies. And I promise this time I will ask our experts the best ways to achieve weight loss. It's all coming up on part two of our look into weight loss on what happens next. For most of my life, or a lot of my life, uh, I was very fat. I am a lot less fat than I used to be. Um, and so I have lived this experience, very much so. Dr. Hilary Offman is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and lecturer at the University of Toronto. She's interested in weight and gender and the idea of otherness in general. And I think that's the best place from which to speak, having the experience oneself. Um, and also as a physician and a psychiatrist who treats people, I have the other side of the experience as well, which is what are we supposed to do about this? What does it mean? Now, fat is a very loaded term. Some people don't even like to use it. They think the term itself is pejorative. Where would you stand on the use of the term? I choose to use the word fat because I'm aware that it is a word with a lot of pejorative connotations. And there are all these um, words that people use to sort of cover up what they're trying to say that in my mind even make things worse. And it's sort of a, a, a bit of activism, a taking back of the word, a reclaiming of it as something that can be said, like a descriptor, like tall or short. Um, and there's something about uh, speaking to something as it is uh, and forcing people to meet you right there instead of uh, sort of sliding away from uh, the implications of the word. When you use the word, do you find that people get uncomfortable? Yes, I do. And it's funny, I stopped. I personally am not uncomfortable when I use it. Uh, and I think that's because I've been practicing using it. Um, and I think I don't mind that it's a bit disarming. I think that in order for people to take the topic seriously, I think they need to be a little bit disarmed. Well, I wanted to ask you about this idea that we see a lot in advertising, particularly on social media now, of healthy at any size. Talk to us more about that. Do you think we are accepting of this concept um, or as as accepting of this concept as, as we should be? Do you think it's too flat a message for people to really grapple with what's your take on it well I would like to believe that there's been an uptake in society for health at every size 
because it makes sense. I mean, what should your size matter if you're healthy and you're enjoying your life? But sadly, I feel like there's a lip service paid to that. Um, you know, we might say it, but we don't really believe it. Um, and, you know, even people who are fat, because of what becomes an internalized stigma, believe it too. It's very hard if even the people who are fighting against the stigma also believe in it. They believe that they are to blame. Uh, they believe that there's something wrong with them and that they should work harder. Uh, you know, you'll have your family saying, oh, I want you to lose weight because I care about you. And there's this part that's like, well, yeah, but that's not really what this is about, right? This is about how I look uh, and how it interferes. So I truly believe that that is absolutely possible, but I don't think we're there yet. I think we have a way to go before people will really embrace that idea. And even healthcare professionals, uh, have trouble with that concept. They tend to, uh, there's a, a sense that fat people get blamed for everything that's wrong with them. So if you go to the doctor and you're fat, they'll say, well, you better go lose weight. And mm -hmm. you're like, well, yeah, but I have a, an extra leg sticking out of my head. That's nothing to do with it. <laughs> but this is what happens. And so people feel dismissed. Um, they stop going to their doctors. And, you know, things get uh, misdiagnosed. And if you don't go to your doctor, you can't be diagnosed. Um, and if you're always being told that everything wrong with you is because you're fat, and I can say that's pretty much my experience. I'm Michael Cowley. I'm a physiologist at Monash University, and I work in the biology of weight control, and I work developing drugs to treat obesity and metabolic disease. What do you think about the conflict between fat acceptance activists who have the um, healthy at any size argument and some of the things that scientists say about the negative impacts of uh, being overweight on the body? So I think the health impacts of, of weight are individual. Some people are very obese and don't have health consequences for that. And that's the genetic fortune, I guess, of being able to bear that weight. I... I wouldn't be. I don't think it's right to be prescriptive about what people should look like. Mm. Um, I think people have a right to be as obese or as lean as they choose to. I think there's an element of um, lack of choice in it for many people. It's just the genetic hards they got dealt. Um, but again, I think it should be about metabolic health, not appearance. Um, if you're healthy, then you're healthy. We, we. But even if you're not healthy, I, I don't think it's right to shame people for it. We, we don't. Well, I guess we do shame people for smoking now in Australia, but there are a bunch of other risk-taking behaviours that people still indulge in without being stigmatised. I'm quite comfortable with the idea that people uh, is healthy at any size. Absolutely, there are people who are healthy at very large sizes, and there are people who are metabolically unhealthy who are lean. Mm. And again, we're not we're not worshipping them or, 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 or you know, congratulating them for managing to get sick while still skinny. Yeah, and that would be the flip side of the equation. Yeah. Michelle Bridges is Australia's most influential personal trainer. You probably know her from the hit reality television show, The Biggest Loser. She's also the author of 17 best-selling books on fitness, nutrition, and mindset. Hi, my name is Michelle Bridges. I've been in the fitness industry for 30 plus years. I love this industry. I love empowering people. I love empowering women, of course, into being the best version of themselves through great nutrition and exercise. 
Is there such a thing as being healthy at any size or do you think our culture has overcorrected and over-embraced that perspective? Look, it's, it's, it's a great question because, you know, I've found myself in some pretty hot water having this conversation um, because, you know, it's a sensitive conversation. It's um, a conversation that can easily upset um, and uh, you know, I think we, if you look at it through the lens of common sense, the most important thing is your health. Now, if that means that by dropping a couple of kilos, let's say again, back to the 5% means that you're going to improve your cholesterol levels, your blood pressure levels and reduce the risk of heart disease, then for me, it seems like it's a bit of a no brainer. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, you can be healthy at many different sizes, but rather than looking at it through the lens of what size you are, let's just look at it through the lens of, you know, what's going on for you internally. How is your blood pressure? How is your cholesterol? Can we make some changes in order to improve that? You know, it, it's of no surprise and no shock Um but it was in the t- at, at the time when I very first started working on Biggest Loser and we had some extraordinarily large people that came on that show and that had a, a, a list as long as your arm of health conditions that came with it, we were having the doctors saying, this is amazing, like what we're seeing on their stats week by week, like literally week by week is extraordinary and we've always known that this could be possible. It's just often that we never get the chance to see it actually happen. So we know that by doing a bit of, you know, a little bit of exercise fairly regularly, um, improving your nutrition, reducing processed foods, reducing alcohol intake, um, increasing fibre, these are the things that can make quite a big difference to your health overall, but also to your mental health as well. If you could change one weight loss myth, what would you correct? I guess diet foods, diet drinks, in my experience, again, it has, you know, hasn't ever really um, been probably the most successful path for my people that I've worked with. The supplement industry is massive and makes a huge amount of money on, you know, offering up. Uh, supplementation that can help you lose weight so you know I'm 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 wary of of that I'm a believer in um you know looking at your nutrition and and getting some exercise in to your day and also you know doing the work uh, mentally as well and getting some support for that Uh, one of them that I've heard is um many many instances is that weight training will make you big um, and that won't wait. I believe that weight training is the fountain of youth. Weight training is the way in which you can increase your lean muscle mass, um, assist with the onset of um, early uh, osteoporosis, um, improve your posture, improve your overall cardiovascular system, imp- improve everything. Like weight training is it. So I don't, I, I, I'm not, a, but I'm not going to buy into the one that it will make you big. But on that note, I've also heard the myth of, oh, well, I've started weight training, so that's why I've put on, you know, three kilos. I've put on like three kilos of muscle. 
I'm like, well, you, but you only started weight training a couple of weeks ago. Like, Yesterday. Yeah, it was not possible. But my PT told me it's all right, it's the weights. Here's Dr. Michael Cowley again. As you get older, you want to make, want to put more focus on muscle building or muscle maintenance than you do on cardio, cardio workouts. They're both important for sure. But the young people, 18 to 35, don't need to have that same focus on muscle building. That said, most young people do have a strong focus on muscle building, the ones that engage in the gym. Mm. Um, and I think there are a variety of ways to pursue that muscle growth kind of exercise. It, it doesn't need to be lifting metal in the gym. Mm. I mean, swimming is a terrific way to do it. Um, there are lots of approaches that are not what you typically think of as muscle building exercises too. And and by itself, exercise is just so valuable anyway, mm. irrespective of weight changes. And we know that exercise isn't a good way to lose weight. Mm. In, in many cases, people exercise more and see no weight change and they're disheartened by that. But the health benefits of exercise are tremendous and outweigh any lack of effect on, on body weight. So the best measure for weight loss is calorie intake versus calorie burn? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you need to do both to be effective. If you just food restrict, then you're you'll recalibrate your metabolism and you'll just be more efficient on less food. Do you feel slightly panicky about this in the same way that I do No. as an expert? So how do you reconcile all this within your head as an individual? Yeah. So I'm in my 50s now. Um, I'm never going to have the physique I'd like. Uh, I am as active as I can be. I exercise regularly um, and I try to eat healthily and that is enough that I feel better. It's Mm. not going to make me live forever. But um, I think we need to not strive for perfection here. Mm. We have to accept ourselves as we are and and do as much as we can. But again, my focus is on more exercise rather than dieting down to be able to count the muscle fibres in my abdomen. For the average person at home who maybe wants to be healthy and is just seeing, you know, every diet being thrown at them on Instagram, how do they know what is healthy and makes sense and is a good idea and what's just a fad that in a year we'll all be embarrassed about? So this is a great question and and I've got, I think, a a good answer for it. I mean, one of my favourite authors is a guy called Michael Pollan, um, a a journalist out of the US, and he's written a series of of books around food and around, I guess, the the food industrial culture, the... uh, uh, one of his favorite, my favorite, a natural history of, of four meals. But he gets asked this question regularly as a, a prominent journalist. And his answer is um, eat food as opposed to chemicals. And he, when he says food, it's something your grandmother would recognize as food, much less of it, and mostly plants. Mm. And it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a message everyone can understand. I mean, if you can't understand the ingredients in the processed food you're buying, he recommends against it. And I think that's a reasonable. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a message that everyone can grasp, I think. Right. Eat food, mostly plants, not too much. Yeah. Mm. That's the, the easiest way to do it. And it seems to work. The formula's a good one, but given the enormous role our genetics play, eating the right food may not be enough. I asked Dr Ahmed Ali, head of upper GI surgery at the Austin Hospital, about a more drastic lifestyle change. So if you can't help your genetics, and it sounds like for the vast majority of people, if they are obese, keeping the weight off is is almost impossible. Is surgery really the only feasible long-term option? Surgery is a very effective treatment. 
And of all the treatments that we have at the moment, it still remains the most effective for medium to long-term weight loss. It's not the only treatment. In fact, I think we have to really think about obesity as a chronic disease in the same way that we treat many other diseases um, that are chronic like arthritis. We don't necessarily immediately jump to surgery for an arthritic knee. We might start with some physiotherapy. We might add some anti-inflammatory medication. We might do an arthroscopy and clean up the knee joint. And eventually we might need a knee replacement. So it very much depends on what stage of disease we are at. And obesity is, is a similar situation. If someone is suffering obesity and their obesity is creating life-threatening um, conditions and you know, more than likely they will have tried other means of weight loss in the past, well, no, the appropriate treatment for that patient may well be surgery. On the other hand, there may be another patient who, um, yes, is suffering obesity. Perhaps it's not affecting them from a, a medical disease, you know, illness point of view so severely. And perhaps we haven't tried other therapies, you know, to their fullest extent, in which case we might avoid surgery in that patient and use some of these other treatments. The fact that they're not quite as effective or maybe don't last as long isn't necessarily a bad thing or a reason that we must always jump to surgery. It's about using the right treatment in the right person at the right time. When we talk about patients suffering obesity, we're talking about a level of weight, usually genetic encoded, where it either has the potential to significantly affect health or it already is. That's where we're using treatments like surgery or like medication, which helps suppress the appetite, helps control or modulate that, that drive, that hunger that tends to cause the weight regain to help patients lose weight and then keep it off. Let me make it very clear. If these patients did not have any discipline, well, they wouldn't have yo-yoed because they wouldn't have lost weight in the first place. It's extremely hard to lose weight. It's virtually impossible to keep it off if you're suffering that genetic predisposition. Mm. So give us a the most simple um, explanation or description of what happens in bariatric surgery and then you know, the process of the surgery, and then what happens in the patient's body afterwards? Why does it change things for them? As we said, the genetics tends to code for an appetite setting, if you like, that's high. They've got a high appetite. They're driven by hunger most of the time. Um, they may not feel full easily. So often these patients will tell you, you know, they eat a large volume of food and they say, I'm still hungry. I, I don't know why. Um, whereas others that aren't suffering obesity say, well, you know what, I eat a sandwich and that's it, I'm done. I just don't even want to look at food anymore. I don't really get, you know, that. it's not a choice. It's just a feeling, right? It's a sensation. What surgery fundamentally does is it modulates that appetite. So by altering um, gut structure, often people think of it as, oh, we make the stomach smaller. And sort of technically, yeah, that's sort of true, but it isn't about size, what happens when we manipulate the stomach or the small bowel in certain ways, what happens is it changes appetite and it changes that sense of fullness. So when we do the surgery, what then happens afterwards is when patients eat a small amount of food, like, you know, a half a sandwich or something like that, they just feel full. They just feel disinclined to eat. They don't want any more. Similarly, the hunger is suppressed, so they don't get hungry quickly. And for many patients, actually, yes, they love the weight loss and the improvement of health and so on, but many patients tell us, you know what, that lack of hunger, that no longer being incessantly driven by hunger, that's actually the biggest benefit because it, 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 I suddenly feel like I'm, I've got control again. I feel like I am me again. I feel like I can 
manage things. I, I'm not dominated constantly by this hunger. I mean, you think of it yourself, Susan. If you're really hungry, for whatever reason, you haven't been able to get breakfast or lunch and you're hungry, you're driving along the street, suddenly every shop you see is a food shop. Even streets you've driven down before, you've never noticed the pizza shop before, but now you do. That's what appetite does to us. It switches all of our senses on to go looking for that food, to go wanting it. And until you eat, you're going to be driven and driven and driven to go and do it. And it's all biological and it's all survival. It makes sense, yeah? What we do with surgery is we modulate that. We alter that. Medications that treat obesity do a similar thing. Most of them are aiming at reducing that appetite, increasing that sense of fullness. In fact, most of the newest medications are derived from hormones that we discovered were important in regulating appetite. And we discovered that through studying surgery. So the medications these days are trying to mimic what surgery does. Do you think perhaps those medications might be a future direction? Surgery may no longer be needed, which is obviously quite invasive and no small thing. And perhaps it will just be the medication instead? Well, I think it's certainly, there is a drive to develop medications and other treatments. Absolutely. And that's right and proper. And we should, because as I said, this is a chronic disease, which will require treatment on multi, multifaceted treatment and often combinations of treatment. We're now combining surgery with medication sometimes in some patients. So I think it's, you know, we'll need all of these treatments. I don't think necessarily that surgery will be replaced. I think the biological mechanisms are just so sophisticated and complex that it's going to be very difficult to replicate it in a single pill or a single, you know, injection. What happens in the body with appetite and appetite control and when you eat it's like a symphony it's not just one hormone it's hundreds of hormones that are going and flowing and ebbing in different ways and people with different genetics will have a different symphony to others and so we i don't think we're going to find one single critical key i think it's going to be multiple points that are going to help there's something sort of beautiful about listening to that internal symphony It's almost like looking at that much smaller picture of hormones and genes opens our eyes to a much bigger picture. There's more to weight loss, gain and body type than what's on your plate and who's teaching your next gym class. So the next time you step onto that scale and start to despair, remember that internal symphony. Remember to reframe the way you think about fat. And if that doesn't work, blame your parents. Thank you to all our wonderful guests on this series for their valuable insights. If you're enjoying what happens next, why not give us a rating, five stars only please, and review on your favourite podcast app. I'll see you back here next week with a brand new topic.